Okay, if you don't have a handout, grab a handout. They're available on that table when you come in. Also got hot coffee ready for you. A reminder, thank you, Kirk, for reminding me. We do not have class next week. We don't have class next week. So we skip a week, and then we will finish up with class five and six. It'll be the same case for the next class, too. It doesn't run consecutively. There'll be a schedule, and we'll be on most weeks, but we will be off some weeks. So if you're in these classes, pay attention to that schedule. Two quick things before I pray. First, would like to continue to encourage you to email me your questions. Some of you have, and I think it's been helpful. And also, following this series, a reminder, beginning April 8th, we'll start our next Sunday School series. That's going to be called Grounded in the Gospel, which is going to be a long look at a Reformed Baptist catechism. So we'll be studying theology together systematically uh, by looking at short questions and short answers. And for those of you who would like, you can even memorize those questions and answers, which I plan to do for the first time and to encourage my older boys to do for the first time, they're just now finding out. So let's pray, and then I'll get started with today's lesson on unconditional election. Our Father in heaven, thanks for time this morning to worship with your people, to come before you in this place and pray, and read your word, and hear the preaching of your word, and sing to you, and to fellowship with one another. And thank you for time now to think about these great doctrines of grace, to examine this jewel of our salvation. Help us to understand. Help us to embrace your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our fourth class today. Following the Opening class, which was an introduction, we've looked at the doctrines of total depravity and irresistible grace, and today we're looking at unconditional election, total depravity. Here again is John Piper's summary from his book, Five Points. When we speak of man's depravity, we mean man's natural condition apart from any grace exerted by God to restrain or transform man. So total depravity affects the whole person of every person so that everything man does is sin. Man is unable to do anything truly good, including faith and repentance. And man is deserving of eternal punishment. And all this is true apart from grace. Irresistible grace. You and I did not overcome our own rebellion. Because you and I could not overcome our own rebellion, God overcame our rebellion. So here's another summary from John Piper in his book, Five Points. Irresistible grace is God's work in us by which he overcomes our resistance to God and unfailingly brings about the act of saving faith. And here's another quote that I meant to read last week and was helpful for one of you in response to a question you sent me this week. Irresistible grace does not drag 
the unwilling into the kingdom. It makes the unwilling willing. That's an important distinction, and that's how this is not just a mechanical thing. This isn't a a robot thing or a puppet thing. This is God changing our heart so that we are willing and of our own will and desire then come to Him because He has overcome our rebellion with His grace. So now here is unconditional election. So that's total depravity. That's our condition. That is irresistible grace. God overcoming our resistance. Unconditional election is that God decided to do all of that. God decided to save you before the creation of the world. On the basis of his good pleasure alone. That's basically what unconditional election is. God saving you, calling out to you through irresistible grace God decided to do that for you before the creation of the world on the basis of his good pleasure alone. In other words, the basis for that decision to save you was not based on anything good in or about you. There was nothing in you or me or foreseen in you or me that caused God to choose us. So let me now read a few proper definitions of unconditional grace. Here are some proper definitions. You have them on your handout. Now here's how the London Baptist Confession of Faith, our confession here, begins. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. Now, technically, that paragraph speaks to the predestination of all people and not election. Technically, predestination precedes election. Predestination refers to God's plan, right? His plan of what he plans to do, while election is part of the carrying out of that plan. I think this will become clear. Here is election now in the same confession. Those of mankind that are predestinated, right? So God's already decided what he's going to do. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause Moving him thereunto. So that's the unconditional part of unconditional election. There was nothing in the creature, that's you and me, there was nothing in us as a condition or cause that moved God to elect us. 
And then finally the confession says, As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are you tracking so far? So God predestined, then God elected, and then he foreordained also all the means to actually get those he chose to save saved. All those means were also foreordained. Being fallen in Adam are, and here they all are, redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit working in due season, that's irresistible grace we looked at last week, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Final proper definition. Here is election according to the Synod of Dort. The Synod of Dort who wrote the Canons of Dort, those five points in response to those five points of Arminianism which questioned the orthodoxy of the day. Here is what they say about election. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God whereby before the foundation of the world, he has out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault from their primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, whom he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect and the foundation of salvation. This elect number though by nature neither better nor more deserving than others, right, unconditional, but with them involved in one common misery, God has decreed to give to Christ to be saved by Him and effectually to call and draw them to His communion by His Word and Spirit, to bestow upon them true faith, justification and sanctification and having powerfully preserved in them the fellowship of his son finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and for the praise of the riches of his glorious grace so God chooses who will be saved that's the next heading on your handout that God does that that God predestines, chooses, and elects, that is not in dispute. At least not among Calvinists and Arminians. Predestined is a biblical word. The word predestined is just, it's in the Bible. In Acts 4, and Romans 8, and Ephesians 1, election is also a biblical word. It's just in the Bible. It's in Romans 9, 2 Peter 1, the second Timothy two. In Deuteronomy four, you can read that later. God chose Israel. In Psalm seventy eight, we read that God chose David. In Luke six, God chose his disciples. And then listen to Second Thessalonians two thirteen. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning. 
God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So God chooses. God elects. God predestines. That's inescapable. That's all over the Bible. This is not what people disagree over. Here is what people disagree over. On what basis does God make this choice? That's the disagreement. That God predestines, elects, and chooses is not in dispute. But on what basis does God choose some and not others? On what basis does God predestine some to this and some to that? How, in other words, does God choose whom he will save? And there are basically two positions. Position one. And this would be an Arminian position. This is what I grew up with. God chooses us for salvation because we have chosen him. We are saved or we are chosen. We are elected because of and based on foreseen faith. Therefore, man's choice is the foundational choice in his salvation. And God's election is conditional. It is based on foreseen faith. We'll explain that more in a minute. Here's the second position, and this is the Calvinist position, the position I currently hold. God chooses us for salvation and changes our heart so that we freely choose him. We are saved. We are chosen. We are elected. Not based on foreseen faith, but based on God's sovereign choice. Therefore, God's choice is foundational, not man's. God's election here is unconditional. So here is the question. Is our faith and belief, here we are as Christians, we have faith, we believe. Is our faith the reason for God's election or is it the result of God's election? You have faith. Is that the reason for God's election? You had faith and he elected you. Or is your faith the result of God's election? He elected you, therefore you had faith. So let's look at each of these. I think they're A and B in your handout. A is one, B is two. I'm, of course, arguing for the second, but I do want you to understand the first view. And I don't just want to present straw man arguments for it that, you know, you'll just leave here this morning and then hear a good argument for it and say, yeah, we've been duped. This, this isn't really the deal. So I want to, as best I can, represent very clearly that first argument. A, man's choice is foundational. God's election is conditional. This is a plausible argument, and I want you to hear it as plausible. It's not, it's not true. It's not biblical. It's not right, I don't believe. But I do want you to hear the plausibility of it. The idea is this. God, right, before creation, looks down the tunnel of time. And he sees who will believe the gospel and elects them for salvation. They meet the condition for election. So God, before creation, looks down time and he, he sees. He knows everything. So he sees Bob, Bob's going to choose me. He's going to believe. Sue's not. And everyone who believes, right, he says, I elect them. 
for salvation. So his election is conditioned upon whether or not they believe in him. So here I'm going to quote some Arminians. Here's classic Arminianism according to Carl Bangs when he writes about Arminius. God purposes to save particular persons and to damn others, which decree rests upon the foreknowledge of God by which he has known from eternity which persons should believe and which should persevere through subsequent grace and also who should not believe and persevere. Now, here are a couple quotes. The first one from R.T. Forster. This is more contemporary Arminianism. The point is that the election of the church is a corporate rather than an individual thing. It is not that individuals are in the church because they are elect. It is rather that they are elect because they are in the church, which is the body of the elect one. That's how many Arminians would actually argue today. It's a little more difficult to track. But the idea is that God looked ahead and he did not elect individuals. He elected the church. And, of course, he knows who's going to believe and become a part of the church. But he didn't elect certain individuals. He just elected the church and said the church is those who will believe. And then he looks and sees who it is that's going to believe. Clark Pinnock puts it this way. Election is a corporate category and not oriented to the choice of individuals for salvation. Election speaks of a class of people rather than specific individuals. And they would use texts like Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 1, Romans 8, 1 Timothy 2, and we'll look at some of those together. So that is the, that is the argument. And now, there are some problems with this view. And then I'll argue for the second. Here are just a few problems. Number one, man is totally depraved and unable to choose God. I would refer you to week two of this study on total depravity. The natural man, apart from God's irresistible grace, will never choose Jesus. That's the problem. So God's looking down that tunnel at time. If he's not doing anything to influence, no one is going to jump into that tunnel. No one is going to choose him if we believe total depravity. You can read Joel 21. R.C. Sproul said, If the final decision for the salvation of fallen sinners were left in the hands of fallen sinners, we would despair of all hope that anyone would be saved. Another problem, number two, if man is saved by faith that is of himself, then this is salvation by works. If God, in other words, if God works in everybody exactly the same way, and that's the argument of Arminianism, he doesn't do anything more for one than the other, if God works in everybody the exact same way, then the only difference that leads to the reward is in us, our faith. And that makes faith a meritorious work. So let's look at 2 Timothy. I want you to see this in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore... 
Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So what, what does this verse say to us, and is it, is it helpful in, in debunking this first position. So let me ask you a couple questions. You can just just look at the verse and, and yell out the answers if you see them in the text. First of all, what what is it that God has done for us? Okay, so God who saved us and called us, right? This is what God has done. And, and what God has done for us Paul tells us it's it's not because of what? It's not because of our works. What what did he save us and call us because of? But because of, right, his own purpose. And when when was that according to the text? given to us before the ages began and and where was that given to us here's the where word in Christ Jesus so so let's just let's put that all together so god saved us and called us in Christ before the beginning of time and he did this without any reference to our works. So I think that debunks God looking down the corridor of time and seeing who would do this and who wouldn't and then calling and saving us based on that. The third problem, if this is true, then God does not truly save anybody. He just makes everybody savable. That would be another problem. Then God doesn't actually save anybody. He makes everybody savable. And now it's up to us. Okay. Now B, and this is right. This is right, I believe. God's choice is foundational. God's election is unconditional. So this is unconditional election. So the rest, for the rest of our time, let's look at a bunch of scriptures together. That's, that's what we're going to do for this. I want you to see this supported in God's word. And, and we're going to ask a question before each of these scriptures. So the, the first scripture to look at is Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, and then verse 11. So let's look at this together. If you want, you can look at your handout. If you want, you can look up here. I'll make notes up here. Is election conditional or unconditional? Let's, so let's read this. Even as he chose, so here's our election. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Right? This is election. He did this before creation. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined. There it is. It's election again. 
He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And now, here we go. Here's the why. According to. According to what? The purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace. So it does not say He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to our foreseen faith. It could say that. Or according to our faith. It could say that. This decision that God made, this choosing, this predestining, according to this text, it is according to the purpose of His will. The praise of His glorious grace. Look down at verse 11. Same thing. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. So there it is. God has predestined us according to. According to what? The purpose of Him who works all things, not just our election, but all things according to what? The counsel of His will. So here you have Right, God making a decision before the creation of the world. And the only thing he's considering, the only thing he is consulting is his own mind. Right? It is just his own will and his own pleasure and his own purpose. And it has nothing to do with any conditions being met in the future, including faith. We're going to skip the next question. At least I think you have that question on your handout. Let's move to Acts 13.48 and ask this question. Is election based on foreknown faith? Or does faith happen because of election? Do you see what we're doing with, with all these texts? We're, we're, we're going back and looking at 1 and 2, A and B, and we're trying to figure out, okay, which, which comes first? Right? Is it election and then faith? Or is it my faith and then election? Because those are the two positions. So we're looking at all the different ways the Bible talks about our salvation and seeing, okay, what, which, which is it that comes first? So let's look at Acts 13.48. The question is, in this verse, is election based on foreknown faith or does faith happen because of election? Now, do you see the word in here that's indicative of faith? Where is it in the verse? The very last word, isn't it? Believed. That's what you did. That's what I did. That's what people in Acts were doing. And here's election. Had been appointed to eternal life. Now, as you read that verse, what is the order? Okay. They believed, but who believed? Those who had been, that's past tense, appointed to eternal life. So first, number one, they had been appointed to eternal life, and then they believed. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Do we belong to God because we come to Jesus, or do we come to Jesus because we belong to God? Which is it? John 17, 6 through 9. 
I, this is Jesus, I, he is talking to God the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now again, we're, we're, we're just looking at the order here. And we're asking ourselves the question, do we belong to God because we come to Jesus? So we come to Jesus and so he says, okay, you belong to me. Or do we already belong to God? Like we're elect, we belong to him. And then, in time, we come to Jesus. Well, well, well what does this say? Again, look at the, the order of things here. Okay, First, this is number one. They were yours. That's, that's as far back as this verse goes. They were, God the Father, they were, past tense, they were yours. And then, God gave them to Jesus. You Gave them to me. You have given them to me. But they are and were yours. And, and, and then what happens? And they have kept your word. So that you see what the verse is saying. They, they belong to you. They were yours. That's unconditional election. And now here I am and you have given them to me. And what has Jesus done? I've manifested your name to them. And what have they done? And now they have kept your word. They have kept your word because you gave them to me. You gave them to me because they were yours. In other words, we come to Jesus because we belong to God. John chapter 6, verse 37 through 39. All, whoever the all is here, the people that are being talked about, all that the Father gives me, there it is again, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me. That's God. This is the will of God. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So there it is again. The Father has them. He gives them to Jesus. Does He give everyone? This is a good question now. And an Arminian would say that God draws everyone, and then it's up to us. God gives everyone to Jesus. Could that be true? According to this verse, that God gives everyone to Jesus and, and now it's up to them and their individual choices? No. Why not? Not unless you're a universalist. Because according to this verse, every single one of those that the Father gives to Jesus, how many are lost? And what happens to every single one of those all. 
they're raised up on the last day. So we come to Jesus because we belong to God. Next question. Are we sheep because we believe, this is, this is kind of a funny one. Are we sheep because we believe or do we believe because we are his sheep? So you, so you get it, right? And I was raised believing that I believed and so then I became a sheep. Is that what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach, no, you believed because you were a sheep. You weren't a goat. That was already decided. These are sheep, these are goats. The sheep, at some point, when God's irresistible grace comes, they're going to believe. Or, is that not how it works? And you just believed and you became one of his sheep. Well, listen to John 25 through 27. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. So these, these aren't believers here. These are non-believers. They do not, that's who this is about. They do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. These testify about me. But you again, he's not talking about believers here. You do not believe. This is great. Why don't they believe? What's what's his answer here? That's what this is going to tell us. They don't believe because they are not his sheep. What do his sheep do? My sheep, they hear my voice. I know them. And what do they do? They follow me. Sheep hear the call of Jesus. Sheep are known by Jesus. Sheep follow Jesus. What about all these other people that don't, don't believe? What is Jesus' logic here? Why don't they believe? They don't believe because they are not sheep. So we believe because we are his sheep. Okay, there's many other texts, but that's all we're going to look at this morning. Now, how about some problematic texts? We don't want to make this easy. I mean, this is either what the Bible teaches or it's not what the Bible teaches. So we don't want to hide things from one another, right? I remember when I, when I first came to some of these convictions and I was sharing with other people these convictions, there were certain verses I hoped they wouldn't ask about. And they're these verses, right? I hope that they wouldn't find them in their Bible. Lord, please keep them out of, keep them out of 1 Timothy. You know, have just, Lord, keep them in Romans 9, just over and over and over again. And the Gospel of John, but don't let them read, you know, I didn't really pray that, but I did think that, and I dreaded the questions. So here's one problematic verse, and hopefully you'll see why Arminians would use these. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of, of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. So an Arminian would read that verse and say, God rightly, for the first part, God desires all people to be saved. So why would he elect only some to be saved? It's a great question. It seems contradictory to this. If you desire all people to be saved, don't tell me then that God elects only some people to be saved. 
So it's seemingly problematic. It isn't problematic. It is seemingly problematic. Let's look at another one. Second Peter 3, 9. It says the same kind of thing. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. An Arminian would read that verse and say, God rightly, God doesn't want any to perish. God wants all to reach repentance. So don't tell me that God only elects some and sends others to perish and only elects some to repentance. Now, this verse might actually be solved right here in the verse with with this right here. We're not going to go into it and figure that out right now. But the fact that toward you, that's that's who Peter's talking about. Whoever you is here, that's who God is not wishing that any of them should perish. Well, the context of Second Peter, the you all throughout this letter is Christians. These are believers that, that Peter's writing to. But but nevertheless, that's that would be one of the verses that's held up. And then a third one. And there are a couple others, but they say the same kind of thing. But Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? That's a rhetorical question God's asking. The answer is, is no. No, that's what God means by this verse. I don't have any pleasure. I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So God's saying, is my desire that everyone would, all the wicked would turn from their way and live. I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Then, then why do you ensure the death of the wicked? That's the question. Then why don't you turn everyone from his wicked way that he should live? Okay, so those are some seemingly problematic texts. Now, the temptation, the temptation is, there's temptations for an Arminian and there's temptations for a Calvinist here. The temptation is for one side to say, these verses, these verses speak of the universal love of God. He loves everyone. He desires all to be saved. Therefore, he must not unconditionally elect only some to salvation. That's a temptation. So, what someone did, just did there is they took these verses and said these verses are more important than all those other verses that we just read about unconditional election. Right? They're doing hierarchy with God's word now. It says this, he desires all to be saved, he desires that none should perish, he doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, all those verses that we just read about unconditional election, those must not be true. So don't do that. That's a temptation. There's a temptation on the other side. The other temptation is to say that 
these verses, all those verses that we looked at this morning about unconditional election, these verses speak of God's unconditional election. Therefore, he, he must not really desire all to be saved. Don't do that. So now you're taking those verses and saying, those verses are more significant than this verse, or, or those verses trump this verse. So we can't do that. But you already know this when you stop and think about it. We need to believe the whole Bible. Even when it appears to contradict itself. And the word appears is extremely important. Because let me ask you a question you should all know the answer to very quickly. Does the Bible contradict itself? No, of course not. It is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Does the Bible, and it's okay, be honest. Does the Bible appear to contradict itself? Yeah, absolutely. It appears at times to contradict itself. For example, this is an example. Both of these themes are clear in Paul's letter, his letters just to Timothy. Okay, so these are, this is just a sample. These are just in Paul's letters to Timothy. And, and I want you to look at this. Look at the apparent contradiction. We read this one, 1 Timothy 2, 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to... So what does God desire for all? To be saved and to what? To come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, same Paul. Second letter to Timothy What does he say? Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to, and then look here, a knowledge of the truth. Now, guess what? If you were to look at the Greek, you know what? Exactly the same. So, when I read these verses by Paul, same words, I'm forced biblically In other words, this isn't like my system of theology, my Calvinism or my Arminianism that makes me do this. But we're forced to say that God wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth, but God does not give all the ability to come to a knowledge of the truth. It is very, I hope you see that, it's very plain. In one verse, God desires all to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then in the next verse, but God is only granting some of them giving them the ability, we looked at that last week, to come to a knowledge of the truth. So the truth is, Calvinists and Arminians all have problems here. Yeah, 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 right. No one, no one, gets, no one gets out of the problem because neither Arminians or Calvinists are, are universalists. We don't believe that everyone gets saved. So, so what's the problem? Well, 1 Timothy Two, four, that, that's a problem for us because God desires something that doesn't come to pass. And, and we all have to answer for that. God desires all to be saved. Are, does God save everyone? And, and the Arminian and the Calvinist, though they would answer it differently how it gets there, they would say, no. God does not save everyone. So God desires something that doesn't happen. That's amazing. Therefore, 
and this is what I would submit, and if you want, you can just leave it there. There's nothing wrong with that. You can just leave it there. Both true. Now, I like to try and work it out biblically and figure it out. What's going on here? How does that work? How could God have a desire that, that, that he could, he's God, so he can make it happen and he doesn't make it happen? I like to try to figure it out. You don't have to, though. For example, J.I. Packer would not. He would just stop right there. He'd say it's an antinomy. It's beyond our understanding. The Bible doesn't take us any farther. I think it does. And many scholars think it does, but he wouldn't. He'd say, we just leave it right there. I can't explain that to you, but it's true. It's in the Bible, and that's enough. But maybe there's more. I would say, and many would say, this isn't, I don't want you to think this is just a, something I came up with. There must be something that God desires more than saving everyone. There, there, must, be, uh, there must be, and I'll show this to you in Scripture now, but there, there must be levels of willing in God. Now, there's levels of willing in you, so you get that. You can desire something and then do something else that's counter, actually, that desire because you desire that even more than that other thing you desire. I've used this example before. I, I don't desire to discipline my children. Right? That's not something I, and, and any, no good parent enjoys that. I don't desire to discipline my children. And I could, I could say, and it would be a totally true statement, that I, my desire is to never discipline my children. And I would absolutely mean that. But then you look and you see me disciplining my children, and you're going, well, you're the one in control of that. Why are you doing that? Well, I desire to bring my children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord even more. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline them. So, I mean, you know that. You have, you have levels of willing and levels of desire. Could, could that be in the heart of God? Well, of course it could be in the heart of God. We're created in his image. So, there must be something that God, I would submit, that God values more than all men being saved. And this is actually how classical Arminians and Calvinists would answer the question. At the end of the day, they would say, yes, there is something. The Arminian would say that God prizes free will above saving everybody. That's, that's the value. He values giving you the power of choice. That, that's, that's it. So that, that really is it. Free will. That's why John Calvin called free will an idol. And, and there are many who you'll hear get very angry when you start talking about free will. Get very heated when you start talking about free will. So it comes out. That's a belief that God, more than saving everybody, God desires to preserve this power of choice and free will in human beings. And so he knows that they're going to use it for good and they're going to use it for bad, but he wants us to have that free will. Okay, the Calvinist would say that God prizes his glory above saving everybody. And he means to display his glory through justice and wrath and mercy. So that he would be known, so that he would be praised, so that he would be glorified. That is a more biblical position. Let me quote John Piper. You have this on your handout. While God clearly desires that all men would be saved, there is obviously something that God is committed to as being more valuable than saving all. One believes that God is committed to preserving human self-determination. And for another, the greater value is the manifestation of the full range of God's glory and wrath and mercy and the humbling of man so that he enjoys giving all credit to God for his salvation. Since not all people are saved, we must choose whether we believe that God's will to save people is restrained by his commitment to human self-determination or whether we believe that God's will to save all people is restrained by his commitment 
to the glorification of his sovereign grace. And let me just show you this last scripture. I don't think you have it, so you can write it down. It's up here, Lamentations 3, 31 through 33. And I just want to show you an example of this. So that we're not just making an argument from silence here about there being two wills in God and competing desires even in God, but that we actually see this clearly in Scripture. This is, this is a, quite a verse. Read this with me. So, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, and that's an amazing statement right there, he causes grief. Hmm. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So, he causes grief, right? Number, number one, you could say, so that, number two, he can have compassion. So that he can love you and show you mercy and compassion. And that's according to the abundance. He's just, he has so much steadfast love for you. Now, now look at this next verse. Because you read that and think, wow, wow, that's, I don't know how I feel about that. I like the compassion, but I don't like the grief. Can I have the compassion without the grief? Can, well, that's how I would think when I read that, or how I do think. For, so we, you know enough to know that that's a good word. I mean, there's going to be some kind of explanation or reason here. <laughs> Listen to this. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So that, that verse is reaffirming that he does grieve, he does afflict. I was telling you the, the why behind it. So again, he, he does cause grief, he does afflict, he does grief. And then there's just this little helpful point here, I guess, for us. And that is that, but, but he does, when he does that, when he causes grief, when he grieves the children of men, when he, when he afflicts them, he does not do that from his heart. Isn't that an amazing verse? He does not do that from his heart. So there's these levels of willing in God. There's multiple desires in God. Is this suggesting that there is from his heart this desire that to, to not grieve? To, to not cause grief? To not afflict? That there's a desire in his heart to save everybody? But there's a greater desire there's, there's something else going on here, which this doesn't say what that is. And from there comes this, this grieving, this afflicting, this unconditional electing, this not saving all. So anyway, either way, though, we go back, I hope you would, to all the verses that we looked at this morning and take all of them accept all of them as the truth of God's word. So in conclusion, let me ask this question. 
what difference does this doctrine make of unconditional election? What difference does it make? Second Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Let me just put those two verses together for you. So one verse said to make your election sure. Now how, do I, how do I make my election sure? How do, I, how do I know I'm elect? God wants you to know that. He wants you to know whether or not you're saved. He wants you to have assurance. He wants you to have the joy of the inexpressible joy, Peter says, that comes from knowing that. So how do you, how do you know that? Right? You don't get a shirt or something that says elect and unelect. You, know, you don't have like a halo. You don't glow. There's no like secret membership role somewhere. I mean, so how, how do I know, make my election sure? How in the world do I, you can't ask God, did, did you elect me? Did you not elect me? How do I make my, how do I know that God has chosen me? You ever ask yourself that? So 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. You've got to read this verse and meditate on it. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. You see how that's going to relate to our question? So Paul's saying, hey, I, kn- I know that God has chosen you. I know that you are elect. And then he tells them how he knows. And so you think about yourself now. Is this true for me like it is for the Thessalonians? Because, Paul says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's the question to ask yourself. Is the gospel just words to me? Is it just a story to me? Yeah, 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 Jesus came, lived, suffered, died in the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God. It's a, a great story, great words. It's in the children's book. You read it to your kids. Is, it, is that all it is? It did not come to the Thessalonians only in word. And how, is it, how has it come to you? Has it come to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction? Do you believe the gospel? Does it have power in your life? Has it changed you? Is it changing you now? Does it bring conviction? Do you feel guilt and sorrow over your sin and ways you didn't before? And when you hear the gospel, it, it brings that again. Is there, is there power of hope in the encouragement? If so... If so, what are you doing when you think about that? You are making your election sure. Now, in conclusion, if, if you figure that out, <laughs> I'm elected. Not because of anything in me. That's not what it says. Make your election sure by, you know, you're a good person and you're this and you're that. No, I'm, 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 I've been chosen by God. Because I believe the gospel. It came to me in power. So what does that mean? That means, again, 
before the creation of the world, God set his affection on you. And he committed in his mind, the mind of God, to save you. Here's the best part. And we'll get to it in a few weeks. And keep you. Unconditional. Unconditional. What if I go off the rails? What if I do this? What if I screw up? What if I don't mature at this pace, at this rate? It's unconditional. It's unconditional. He has decided to save you and keep you. So if you have been saved, you will be kept. Which is the most encouraging thing we could ever hear. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thanks for time this morning to consider your election. Thank you for time to to read your word and to think about why you decided to save us. And then to be humbled, God, as we understand that it has zero to do with us. Who we are, how good we are, how good we've been, what, what kind of family we've come from, our social status, our accomplishments, our history. It has zero to do with us, God. It is completely, totally unconditional. And that, God, your decision to save us is a decision to keep us. A decision to adopt us and and bring us into your family forever. God, would you encourage us with this truth and, and minister that truth to the hearts of everyone here this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.